Hello and welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, or our project's one of your co-hosts. And I'm also still here, Eamon, your other co-host at Voidlight on the Discord. So, Eamon, I can't help but notice that you've got an exceptionally frosty-looking pint over there. Uh, oh, yes. How's the beer of Skull's Faithful treating you? Oh, so good. I, you know I'm a fan of darker beers, so... Oh, the, 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 the chill, the the flavor this is everything that a tavern should be no risk of death and dismemberment at the hands of clockwork goons no risk of taking a tumble out of a into a high altitude death no even real concern about falling off of a cliff this is the life just a straightforward tavern delicious frosty beers not a care in the world except for the right ways to approach tabletop role-playing games I know. It's been a while since we've been in a fictional bar that has just served real good human food. Isn't this lovely? It is. Well, we've got a pretty packed show today. We've got some pretty important topics to tackle. But before we get there, I've got a highlight from a recent game that I'd like to share. Share away. Fantastic. So... Over the weekend, I had a one-shot with a group of my coworkers. I love playing with coworkers in particular because they're people that I get to hang out with on a day-to-day, and getting to share this very fun hobby with them always fills me with a lot of glee. And at this one-shot, I had a couple of coworkers that I'd played with before, and far more coworkers that I had never played with before it at all. In fact, I had five total, all from different walks of life with different levels of experience in tabletop role-playing, and... Our adventure was some fairly standard fare. We had to go to the top of a mountain to, reder- to reverse a curse that made everyone in the world zombies. It was a whole thing. And when we got to the top of the mountain and discovered the dragon of Ernithir, who was responsible for cursing the world with uh, undeadness in order to preserve the immortality of her lover, a human who would otherwise have perished, uh, the party set about the somewhat challenging task of killing her. Now, I know, Eamon, that you have read the 16 HP dragon, the classic treatise on the right way to handle a dragon whose hit points outwardly might not seem to be that uh, that difficult. And, that I have, that I have. And I'm curious, have you ever had a one-shot group come up against a dragon in one of your uh, one of your games? I have not. Uh, dragons, on the whole, have been quite, quite rare in my actual role-playing experience. Yeah, I definitely have had more dragons than maybe I should have. And I was definitely a little bit worried that this relatively uh, relatively docile dragon initially would prove to be a, a fearsome foe should they attempt to antagonize her. And antagonize her they did. And when they set about killing her, they had sort of a tough time at it. See, they're at the top of a mountain. They're in this massive carved out hollow inside of this castle where the dragon and the human uh, are sort of hanging out amongst the treasure horde. And frankly, they would probably not have won had it not been for the fact that they understood and and actually spouted lore a little bit about the larger context of the environment where they were. Because the emulator and the druid sort of came to the realization that the glacier above the cavern, if melted, would flood the cavern, giving the druid sort of a an advantage, natural advantage to the uh, uh, to the fight because this druid was from the islands and could transform into all manner of massive sea creatures. 
And so they did. The immolator redirected a, a pillar of flame from Avernathir, melting the glacier and flooding the cavern, trapping her under a massive high-pressure flood, a deluge even. And then our druid turned into a giant squid and leaped in after her. And 20 wow. minutes later, when the dragon's last gasping rattle filled her lungs with water, he emerged victorious. That shows that was, a lot of how, uh, with the with the right fictional positioning, the the power of the druid can kind of just scale because they can just turn into a suitably sized creature. Totally. But one thing that I was really excited about was the fact that this druid was so much a fish out of water and was still able to use that aquatic ability to his advantage. It was a lot of fun. I was really excited about the way that this group sort of encountered this game and listened carefully to the, the little fictional winks and nods I was giving and then gave me plenty to work with right back. Sounds like one for the scrapbook. Absolutely. Very fun one shot. So that was Drowning a Dragon. And speaking of dragons, it's time for us to jump into our adventure workshop menagerie and talk about today's monster of choice, the dragon bone. I think Skull's got a, something special for us in a cage in the back yes all right so in this cage out back we have something terrible now i'm just going to read a little bit from my tome here mystical sorcerers debate is this creature truly undead or is it a golem made of a particularly rare and blasphemous material the bones, sinews, and scales of a dead dragon make up this bleak automaton. Winged, but flightless, dragon-shaped, but without the mighty fire of such a noble thing, the dragon bone serves its master with a twisted devotion, and is often set to assault the keeps and towers of rival necromancers. It would, taking, it would take a being of some considerable evil to twist the remains of a dragon thus. Instinct. To serve. Move attack unrelentingly now i feel like when we talk about undead the dragon bone is not one that we really think about much in fact i had not really heard about it until i was flipping through the list of monsters earlier today and stumbled upon it in preparation for this very episode well have you heard of a uh, dracolich i have a sense of what it might be but why don't you fill me in in case i'm wrong there, I mean, there's the idea in uh, fantasy that's been going on from Warcraft to different editions of D&D and whatnot, that anything can be a vampire and anything can be undead. And so for a long time, there's been the idea of a vampiric dragon or an undead dragon and things like that. And a Dracolich is basically a dragon that went through the process of becoming a lich. And so it's an undead dragon. And different people, it, it, depending on the game and the system and blah, blah, blah that you're in, it's either like a weaker form of a dragon or a much more powerful form of a dragon. Um, so, yeah. I think this is, at least mechanically glancing at it, it looks like it's probably harder to fight. It has 20 HP, but only 2 armor, as opposed to the regular dragon, which has 16 hit points, but 4 armor. What's the damage uh, just... Out, out of the can that a dragon has in uh, Dungeon World again? If I recall correctly, it's best of 2d12 plus 5 piercing. Wow, so that's a lot That's a lot better than this. Yeah. The, uh, the attack unrelentingly um, move that it has also might make it a little less versatile. I think the idea in Dungeon World as written is that this is like a mindless creature. 
Yes, absolutely. This is a creature that was noble once, but it has long since decayed down to nothing. Or at it least no spark. To serve as well. So this would yeah. be like a fearsome minion. It's definitely something that a necromancer brings up. And the same person who brings up an army of skeletons might bring up a fleet of dragon bones in order to lay waste to their enemies. Truly horrific. Or a really cool um, location-based move would be if you are fighting an actual necromancer or some you know evil shaman or um, something along those lines, and you're on this like craggy outer cropping and they reveal that this is actually a graveyard of dragons and this is a place where dragons have long come to die and they they raise from the like environment like the the remnants of like a dragon that has been deceased here maybe even one that the party has previously killed would be kind of cool Ooh, yeah 10 at uh, 10 sessions ago they kill uh, they dealt a mortal wound to the dragon and saw it fly off towards this peak and as they followed it to make sure that it was actually killed they come across this necromancer and then this ritual is the... in progress yes this is yeah. great arthur so don't let your players hear this part but that dragon they drowned yeah. it's coming back it's coming back as a dragon bone trevor turn this off i know you're listening trevor turn it off <laughs> go back 15 seconds and turn it off uh no i'm kidding so Dragon Bone's super cool. It's this fun undead monster. A little weird that we have it out back in this relatively benign, uh, almost almost sacred tavern here. Sort of scowls faithful. You'd think they'd have a slightly less, uh, slightly more respect for the the decrepit remains of a once noble beast like this. Well, you know how the faithful types are. They're always ritually dismantling and turning undead and whatnot so now, yeah now, th that... i think that uh th this this cage is a little a little glistening i think it's probably holy water yeah eh, that sounds about right keep it back keep it from uh from rising out and being too much of an issue hey speaking of turning undead i've been thinking a little bit recently about clerics and i was thinking maybe today we'd break away from our usual uh discussions of adventures and meta talk and dive on the cleric in a specific move sort of way go ahead I'm listening. So I've been thinking a lot about Turn Undead, just as a move. And it got me thinking, if I ever, in a one-shot, have a cleric, there's something that I, as a GM, am sort of expected to do, right? In order to be a fan of that cleric, i got to give the cleric an opportunity to use the move. Just like if I have a fighter in my game, I'm supposed to put a bar or door or something to get smashed down. If there's a thief, there's got to be something to steal. If there's a bar, there has to be someone to impress with music. I almost feel like if there's a cleric, there's this pressure that I need to give that cleric some undead to turn. Which is a really specific thing that I feel pressured to include in my games when a cleric is present. Do you ever have you ever felt that pressure, Eamon, where there's something that where, where you have to have a particular thing in order for a class to be fun or to expose something cool about them? Yeah, I, I think that that is symptomatic of vanilla dungeon world. That like it's it's a trope factory of like producing those things and and this is one of the worst offenders so to speak if we're going to take it as a negative which i think that we don't have to right i'm not saying it's a into, negative but, certainly but it is but a certainly yeah you're right that like right a, vi a specific enemy type must be present i think another place where this is a little bit more softly present is if the bard takes the um, the specific lore of what the dead and dying or so, something similar, like whatever the bardic lore that they take is that that's like kind of telling you, like, please include this type of thing. Totally. And, and even then though, with the dead and dying on a bard, that is 
something that can be expressed in a lot of different ways. Right, yeah. Whereas this is like, there must be living hostile undead to be turned. Exactly. Living hostile undead who are shambling towards you in a mass. So let's think about this a little bit. So there are a few things that I think can go wrong when we lean on undead too heavily in our games. But I think that if we're clever about it, we can still have a lot of fun with these relatively rote monsters, especially by moving off the beaten track and going away from just your standard skeletons and zombies. So I'm scrolling through the list of undead here, and there are a couple in particular that I love. But why don't we just start with the most basic form of undead, the zombie. 11 hit points, 1 armor, d6 damage with a bite. And our whole description is, when there's no more room in hell. And I think implied dot dot dot. Instinct. Brain. It's a cool monster. You know, we all have zombies. We've all seen zombie fiction. How do we make zombies fun? Well, I'm thinking back a little bit to, I believe, Tucker's Kobolds that we talked about in our in our combat sport versus war episode. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm starting to think, you know, maybe what, what's interesting about zombies can be similar to what's interesting about kobolds. It's not... It, it's, it becomes about the skill with which we run them as monsters in our games. So our moves that we can play with here are attack with overwhelming numbers, corner them, and gain strength from the dead, thereby spawning more zombies. And I want to really call it that second one, corner them. Corner them, that's tactics. Even if it's sort of the the grim tactics of something that's just moving instinctively towards a source of sustenance. So let's think about how we can use corner them as a move. Uh, There's the rote obvious, they're backed into a corner and the zombies grow inexorably closer what else can we do with that i like the idea that that kind of meshes with the overwhelming numbers one that with when there's enough numbers they're just coming in from every entrance at once which can cut you can kind of accidentally get yourself in a surrounded position sure you're you're cornered against a corner made of more zombies yeah precisely um this can even work uh in outdoor spaces of you know you you weren't thinking much of that cliff over there because there's plenty of open ground, but once there is, you know, half a mile of a front of just a massive amount of zombies just kind of inexorably coming towards you, eventually you find yourself cornered without even realizing it in this kind of closing cordon of created by living bodies. Or if you're in, in inside, it's even easier. That up from the stairs you just came from, zombies are coming down from the ramp ahead, zombies are coming, and then out from the gratings, zombies are crawling, and then that's every exit, you know, you choose your choose your poison. Yeah. So, yeah, Corner Them definitely works really well against the backdrop of there are so many of them. But I think it also kind of works when there's only one or two. Like, imagine the scene where there's one zombie who just won't die. You've put him down three times already, and he keeps getting back up. And we're just, like, wandering around this castle trying to fulfill our actual quest while this zombie is just occasionally rising up and being an issue. What a cool source of tension that is if occasionally we are suddenly cornered by this monster. Because we went down the wrong corridor and couldn't get back through the locked door into the cellar. The corner of them doesn't have to be immediate death. It also doesn't have to be something where there's no way to fight your way back out. It's just there's nowhere to run. So your only option is past or through the monster that's stalking you. Now, let's see. Gain strength from the dead and spawn more zombies. Uh, That one... You know, sort of lends itself to a totally different environment, right? That one's all about, 
you know, the graveyard, but it's also about the battlefield, where, which is just uh, in which the day has just been won, but at great cost. That great cost coming back to bite you is definitely fun, definitely spooky. So I, I think um, one, one thing that can make the undead kind of multifaceted, especially when you have a cleric in the party, is the idea of uh, souls and personhood. Because a cleric, the, the interesting parts of a cleric uh, for me are like, what is the nature of their relationship with their god? And what is their nature of their relationship with the rest of the party? Like, are they, are they, uh, are their ideas seen as crazy by the rest of the party? Or are they seen as like very noble? And are they providing actually a very useful service to the rest of the party as a, um, the sort of, uh, chaplain of the party? Like, are the rest of the party also faithful, but just not clerics and that type of thing? Because then you could say, like, is the cleric, um, you know, sort of sending these uh undead to hell when he's destroying them or is he actually saving and releasing them and like sort of allowing their souls to achieve some kind of rest or whatever that looks like with their god that could be a really fun thing to flesh out and really flavor the fiction for your uh cleric and yeah. uh, especially with the zombies is it possible to save them like is it possible to like if you manage to secure them and whatnot to restore their personhood or are they past saving? That type of thing. Yeah. I also like that. Just be, you know, the first instinct when I read Turn Undead before reading the description was, oh, you can turn the undead to serve on your side. And then I read the description and realized it's literally turn the undead around. Right. Yeah. Like that's in them. It's called that. It's in, it's literally inherited from like first edition D&D onwards of yeah. uh, that the cleric could just uh, repulse basically the undead. For sure. All right, so that's zombies. Zombies definitely are sort of on the, the low end of the spectrum. You just get a lot of them. You throw them at the player. You go from there. There are a couple of other cool ones, though, that I want to call out and talk a little bit about in detail here. We already talked about the dragon bone in our menagerie segment. Let's go bigger. The abomination. Solitary. Large. Construct. Terrifying. Special qualities. Many limbs, heads, and so on. Corpses sewn onto corpses make up the bulk of these shambling masses of dark magic. Most of that are crafted to be controlled, not so the abomination. The last aspect of the ritual used to grant fire to their hellish limbs invokes a hatred so severe that the abomination knows but one task. To tear and rend at the very thing it cannot have. Life. Many students of the Black Arts learn to their mortal display the most important fact about these hulks. An abomination knows no master. Instinct to end life. Tear flesh apart, spill forth putrid guts are the moves of the abomination. Uh, have you ever used an abomination? I have not. Yeah, I did once, and it was super fun um, for a couple of reasons. One thing that I did with the abomination that was sort of maybe not strictly speaking implied by the book, but I hid it in plain sight, had the players kind of go through a, a city, and at one point they found in the town square this awful scene people who had died just horribly corpses strewn everywhere no real indication of how or why they died and then they moved on they went and explored the tomb they found the skeletons down in the bottom of the down in the base of the catacombs the, the usual adventure stuff and then they come back up to the town square which is in ruins but all the corpses are gone and why are they all gone? It's because it was an abomination the whole time. And then it rears up. There it is. Players fight and flee, and it was great. 
So yeah, I like the idea that you can hide something that crazy in plain sight just by making it a grisly or macabre scene. Yeah, I think that's um something that is often in uh, in zombie fiction where it's like which one is just a corpse and which one's going to grab you when you get close. Yeah. And what if it's both? They're all corpses and they'll all grab you together as <laughs> one united being. <laughs> you just pull the uh the dead space move on them where the first three rooms full of corpses are totally fine and the mm -hmm. last one is just entirely xenomorphs. <laughs> yeah. The dead space move where you're in an elevator full of corpses and you're fine, but as soon as you get off the elevator, they immediately jump up and run after you. <laughs> as uh, soon as you roll a six minus. Ain't that the truth. All right. Uh, so here's something that we don't really think of as being undead, but it totally is. The Banshee. It is insubstantial in special qualities here. So this is one of a few insubstantial options here. You, all, you also have the ghost. Uh, I believe also well, there, there are one or two others in the book, maybe ghoul. The cool thing about insubstantial monsters is that it lets you ask a player a question and get the response. How do you fight something that you can't touch? Because there's no reason necessarily to have a plan for how your players can kill this thing. If your players are able to come up with a plan in the moment, it'll probably be better than what you were sort of implying for them to do anyway. Also, everyone knows the core thing about a banshee is just how loud they are, how dangerous, how terrible that scream is. So leading into that and really hyping up that first ear-splitting ear scream, you hear it from a distance and it freezes you in your tracks. You hear it closer and it, it causes you to drop to your knees. Maybe even that could it's be a... Sorry, a yeah. good chance to do a Defy Danger Constitution. We Took the words out of my mouth. It's a great opportunity to Defy Danger with stats that we don't always see. I could see Int as well, just to be able to remember, or Wisdom, just to be able to remember what your goal is when the scream hits you. Or to resist the trauma of like foreseeing your own death. Yeah. Because uh, oftentimes Banshee, Banshees uh, in mythology, they, they presage death like that. If you hear their scream, then you're like the next to die or something like that. Totally. Okay, and then, of course, there's the the grandfather of all undead, and I mean that literally because they are so old. There's the lich, which I've also heard pronounced leech and lick and all sorts of other all other things, but I think lich is the is the agreed upon pronunciation. Yeah, I think it's lich. Yeah, so lich in fiction is, and we see this all over the place. You could even make the argument that say Voldemort or Sauron is a lich if you wanted to approach it in a particular way. They bind themselves to life by taking their soul and, and creating it and building it into a physical object, a phylactery. And then in the time that they then buy themselves on Earth, they grow twisted and evil if they weren't already. And they just like to stay alive. In fact, their instinct is to unlive, which I love. That's so Dungeon World. Just... We all know exactly what that means, or at least we all have a vivid instinct for what it is, which is just a treat. So how do we make a lich fun? I think uh, one of the fun things about a lich traditionally is the sort of puzzle of killing them, because one of the things that is kind of kind of similar to zombies where they, they change depending on what the fictional interpretation of them is, but everyone knows at, at least 
that uh, zombies used to be people. Like that's kind of like the core element of them that's usually preserved. Um, the thing for liches that's usually preserved is that they uh, they store their soul somewhere. Uh, they, the, the liches often have a phylactery, which is kind of why it, uh, you could see uh, a Voldemort as a lich, because there's the idea of horcruxes. So the idea is that if you kill a lich, um, his sort of cheat-to-cheat -cheat death is that his soul is stored somewhere else, and he will just reform over time. Uh, in fact, there's a famous um, uh, classic D&D adventure called Dead in Thay, where this whole city of mages called Thay, which is this giant, like, mageocracy, basically, um, all of the higher-ups of Thay eventually get um, supplanted by this group in Thay that is, like, really into necromancy, and they just became this really chummy group of liches, and they have this vault where they all pool their phylacteries. They kind of put all their eggs in one basket and just make it really hard to get to, where you have to go through this exceedingly complex dungeon and literally stored in a separate demi-plane is all of their phylacteries. And so there's this epic adventure of having to... Uh, fight through and unlock that plane so you can go in there and then wreck all the phylacteries and, and finally kill their souls. That sounds pretty good to me. All so, right. Yeah, I mean, that in an adventure location, it could be um, the, the party has to do some uh, discern realities or some spout lores to even find out what the phylactery is. Like maybe an innocuous doll uh, in the corner or something, like that's actually the phylactery, or maybe an NPC they've previously found if you really wanted to like twist the knife and make it grim like maybe one of their hirelings all along has been the phylactery and they actually have to somehow kill them or if they want to like find a way to ha have their cake and eat it to save their life while removing the lich element of them kind of like uh in spoilers i guess for harry potter isn't that sort of what happens with harry himself that is sort of what happens with harry himself although unbeknownst to the lich the phylactery he, he inadvertently destroys his own phylactery right yeah let's move away now from the harry potter comparisons to something else that we see here are two more uh more animal but still deli very deliberately not animalistic monsters the nightwing and the white wolf so a nightwing has the following has the following tags horde and stealthy uh, and they also have the special quality of wings so the Nightwing is something that comes from beyond the Black Gates and has found itself in the real world, the world of flesh and blood, the, the, the mortal plane. And it goes off in predatory flocks, just demolishing livestock and peasants and all the, all the like, uh, stripping them down from flesh to bone. Uh, a very spooky monster, I think in particular because of the stealth element of them. The, the the fact that the night sky itself may house untold quantities of these is such a spooky notion and has a lot of room to play. Similarly, the white wolf, which is like the nightwing, it comes from the world beyond death. They are horde, they are organized, they are intelligent, and they have a shadow form. So these these folks are sort of like super intelligent wolves. Uh, they encircle prey, they summon the pack, they hunt. And they hunt the living for sport specifically. So between these two things, we've got two awful predators of just life in general who fit under the um, undead umbrella but aren't in the traditional like risen spirit or risen corpse. So what can we do with these? Hmm. I like the idea that those could be 
Um, I, well, the, the fact that there's a wealth of undead in the first place makes them flexible to uh, the situation that you want to use them in. So, for example, that if you're in like a forested location and you're wanting to pre pre present an interesting uh, foil for the both the cleric and the druid simultaneously, I might use undead wolves as the kind of answer to that, because then there's a lot of fictional footholds for them to jump off of. That sounds pretty good to me. So here, these are just a few different undead monsters that I've grabbed out of the book and out of the sub, uh, the system reference, uh, something SRD system reference description document document. Yes, That's the one. System reference document. Uh, I, I yes, the system reference document online. We will link to more or less this section in the show notes. Give it a read through. So the next time there's a cleric in your game, you're prepared with some stuff that's way out of left field and super spooky and great. So that is going to do it for our meta talk today. And not a moment too soon. I feel like some of the faithful here are starting to get a little leery of the way that we're so frankly discuss, uh, discussing these awful monsters. Yeah, we are not undead. We are not undead. We are, um, yes, yes, we're flesh and blood, just like all of you, right? Anyway, let's move ahead and get into picture this. All right. Coming as a, a suggestion of someone who has duly reminded me um, of something that I've been forgetting is I think it was Sentinel Greg who was telling me that it's a long overdue that I mentioned the city of Dis uh, in a picture this segment. Um, this is a place that I have uh, traveled a few times. Um, and for those of you that don't know what it is, a little history. Uh, when I say Dis, I am not talking about the uh, Denmark International Studies Program, and I'm not talking about the stock code for Disney, uh, but I'm, of course, talking about Dis as a, um, in the more uh, Dante Alighieri sense, as a, a hellish city or, or an interplanar city. And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Dungeon World itself was actually a, a kickstarted game um, a while ago. I think it was funded... Um, I don't see the date on the actual page, but it was, it was 2003, I believe. All these, all these rewards say 2012. So I guess it was 2012 when the thing that the game actually re released on Kickstarter, at least that first edition, but, uh, we'll link in the show notes, the actual Kickstarter page of, uh, of Dungeon World. If you haven't checked it out, it's an interesting historical document, if nothing else. Um, but I think one of the stretch goals for, Dungeon World, with this series of very um, interesting supplements that try to take the game in different directions. And as far as I can understand from reading it, um, the several times that I have, uh, the Dark Heart of the Dreamer was the name of the specific supplement which introduced the City of Dis, was kind of the, the Dungeon World answer to Planescape. That there was this idea of this interplanar city that was a sort of living and evolving thing that was almost a voracious city that it would subsume other cities and other cultures over time and create this giant mishmash and there was this sort of structure that if you wanted to play adventures in dis you could do it where you would take a job and you would go and try to do this job as a freebooter right and that uh, once you came back other jobs might have been taken or, or evolved and the situations would have changed um, and you could just play a very different, more esoteric uh, form of Dungeon World. And um, the the supplement itself provided a, a couple 
little tables for generating jobs and tables for portraying um, a city with a lot of cultures all together and like representing those well. Um, and also tables for what might happen in your absence to, to jobs that you didn't take to kind of um, make make the world feel living. Um, and what I think about is interesting for me about it is just the different um, the different types of fictional spaces that it can evoke. I mean, if I'm looking through my copy of the uh, Plain Art Codex Dark Heart of the Dreamer here, um, the map has types of things that you wouldn't see in a traditional fantasy map. There's a boat here that's marked Tungsten Galley that is riding on a sea made of fire called the Sea of Embers out from the fire docks. So that looks like the, the city of Dis has subsumed part of the plane of fire. There is a sort of arcane-looking mountain range that is called the Solark Promulgation. Uh, there is a a celestial body floating above the city called the Rogue Moon. Uh, there's an area called the Ditchwater Slums. And there is uh, an island near the mainland called the Fragment of Alumavar, which looks like it's taken probably from the far lands. There's pyramids here with eyes on them and things. So if you wanted to play a very um, patchwork type of setting where characters can go from one parish or one district of the city to another and be in an entirely different uh, culture and terrain, then this kind of provides you the framework to do that from within Dungeon Worlds, which is really cool because a lot of people um, don't know that there's this these, this type of supplement has been around for Dungeon World for a long time, even since... Um, even since before Dungeon World was a game, people thinking about taking it in these directions. And it actually quotes um, actually quotes uh, Dante Alighieri in the supplement, uh, the part where he mentions this, which is kind of cool. Has a lot of love for the source material. And it sounds like the sort of thing that we are always talking about is like, what kind of weird detail can we integrate into our world? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And the city of Dis is just weird detail writ large. What a cool way to do that. Just... Here's a city where everything is possible because it pulls from everywhere, and anything that you do here makes sense. Um, it, it really tries to make the world feel alive, and here's a, a tiny example of uh, how it, it actually does that in the text. Um, I think on page 19 of uh, Dark Heart of the Dreamer, there is a move that says, at the beginning of each session, without fail, have the city make one of these moves. Absorb a place utterly and completely, absorb a place but preserve its essence alter its own geography or open a path to a dangerous new plane and then it says when the city ex expands to consume a place draw its new boundaries on the map when a plane is completely consumed by dis label it as a new district of the city so there's the kind of idea that you are having this shared document with the players of this map that you're constantly adding to and things like that um in a difference, normally in Dungeon World, there's the idea that the map already exists and you're sort of discovering it. Whereas in this, there's the idea that, um, or in this, I should say, there's the idea that when the map changes, it's because it's actually changing. Like you are actually, like the city is actually growing as you experience it over time, which is really cool. Because um, it both provides um, the out of character um, reason for that in the procedures and also the in character reason that uh, your characters are discovering the city they live in as it's happening because it's sort of evolving under their own feet. Yeah, it reminds Very me cool. it reminds me a little bit of the quiet year because you know, yeah. the quiet year is all about having that shared canvas that you're drawing into. I could see a set of quiet year-esque uh, cards that you could use to kind of like gamify the mechanics of uh, this changing even more if you wanted or like new random situations that could come up 
uh, only in this, you know, maybe a, a, um, a whole neighborhood sloughs off into the aether and begins to drift away. Like what, you know, it's your turn. Like, what do you do there? Yeah. Um, we're going to start a new project where we start to, to use the fire plane for unlimited boiling so we can get our, uh, steam (laughs) engines going. Irrigation for the city from the plane of water. (laughs) Yeah. Very cool. That type of thing. I love it. I, I, I think that's great. And maybe, you know, in a couple of weeks here, we're going to be getting back into our actual play episode and wrapping up the Mulsilver's Flute adventure that you've been running. So maybe after that, in our next uh, our next call-in show, maybe I'll take us to the city of Dis. Yeah, maybe um, maybe one of the PCs will just fall through the bottom of, of hell and end up in Dis somehow. Who is to say? Well, um, all one think... PC. Well, we've got uh, NPCs as well that, that is... maybe eventually become player characters. Certainly. Certainly. I was going to say Certainly. that I think um, Joe Banner, I believe, uh, and I'll have to check if this is actually uh, free content or not before we link it, but he put out a, a supplement called Begging in Paradise that was basically a designed for like a starting Dungeon World player, like a starting one-shot, like it had simplified Dungeon World character creation, but just basically based on... Um, dark heart of the dreamer it's like his his take of it um yeah so it, it it's kind of that but with like a little bit more remixed uh mechanics and whatnot um definitely worth a read if you want more dis dis related things i think in his version he calls his uh reality consuming city uh orestes okay i like it Hopefully we get to link that out and I'll get a chance to give it a quick read through. Oh yeah. And actually uh, he links inside of that document to a, a website he made that will generate jobs for you. Ooh. Uh, basically like missions in that system. Very well, cool. Well, that's always fun. And speaking of fun, we've got some community engagement to get off our chest this week. So that's going to do it for picture this and pop us right into our listener email section. So, We've got a couple here, and let's see if we can tackle both of them, because we are doing great on time today. So, first off, from the intrepid Sentinel Greg on the Discord. Something that I've been wrestling with regarding flavorful world details. Take Sargatoon from the most recent podcast when the email was written. I think that was probably two or three episodes ago now. Uh, Sargatoon, for those of you who don't remember, is the queen who demands that everybody eat the same meal for dinner on any given night and demands and uh, prescribes exactly what that meal will be. And there's a big fuss about looking like you're eating the meal that the queen said you should, even if it's just the most vile thing imaginable. And the reason for the question uh, and the question here and, and sort of the reason why Sargatoon ties into it is it's an interesting world building. And it would be an engaging and interesting detail in a fantasy story, but how does interesting world-building detail translate to interesting role-playing game detail? Uh, Sentinel Greg goes on to say, I'm worried that there is some potential for the world-building to take precedence over the player story itself, and everyone gets lost in a marsh of interesting details, but comes out the other side going, huh, weird. Well, back to the game. I'm aware that much of that problem can stem from GMs and PCs not capitalizing on it, but does the question make sense? Interesting world does not necessarily mean good RPG content. Now, I think we've covered a lot of this stuff before, and I want to get back into it again because I think it's something that where our answer is going to keep on evolving and formally answering it whenever we get the chance is always a good time. 
So here's a world building detail, right? It's something where we as at, at the table have all agreed that it's part of our established fiction. How do we even get into that conversation in the first place, Eamon? So I think that knowing how much to give and how much to ask is important with these things because um, it's going to be very hard for the players to engage with if all the buttons seem already buttoned, so to speak, and if everything seems nicely polished and completely rounded. Basically, if there's no blanks, if there's no spaces. So if you give like a whole like uh, description of this in detail of this thing, the players might be like, cool, I guess that's how it is. Uh, what do we do? Whereas if you pose part of it to them as a question, um, then they're already engaging with it out of character, which can like flow into that in-character uh, knitting in. So I think that's at least step one. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, don't go overboard with your prep or don't go overboard with your description or with your... Uh, with your ideas. Building. Yeah, I think maybe part two of that might be... Uh, make sure that you know how the players can interact with it. Even if you don't know how they're going to, have some ideas. Anything that you put into the world that the players don't get to touch and play with and interact with and have a good time with isn't really worth including, I would say. So if you're going to include something like Sargatoon, where it's all about this society having a strange characteristic to it, which is very which is alien and is timing-oriented and requires a physical item or something that you've acquired, there are a couple of different ways that a player can interact with that. A player might be required to obtain it or might be imprisoned for failing to adhere to the rules visibly. A player eating a ration in the middle of town on the night when you're only supposed to be uh, drinking uh, juice will have consequences that are very much that are very tangible, very consequential, very much tied to what the player is actually doing. Whereas if we didn't have a way for a player to interact with that, and it's just something they're looking at through the glass from the other side of the aquarium wall, you know, at a certain point, why, why do that in the first place? So for me, that's step two. You know, once we haven't gone overboard with our prep, how do we connect it to what the players are practically doing? And I think um, one of the ways that that connecting can actually happen is if there's something in the element that is exploitable, because that is essentially what the PCs are there to do is exploit the world to their, their ends. However, that looks, and that doesn't have to be, you know, overly hostile, you know, even just getting on someone's good side is a way of, so to speak, exploiting the world to their ends. But maybe perhaps, um, Sargatoon, they, they come to find out that the reason that she's mandating what everyone eats is to subtly steer people away from eating green food because she's obsessed with green food, wants it all for herself. You know, like something like that. Once the PCs know that secret about her, now they can make informed choices based on that or whatever it happens to be. If their theory is better than yours, run with that. Always. So, yeah, I think that these are some concrete strategies for plucking a fun world detail out of the ether or out of our our culture and history together and bringing it into the game in a way that's cohesive and fun without it just being a weird detail that you're sort of pointed to and saying, look, look, I'm clever. I came up with that. So hopefully that helps. Let us know if you give it a try and it goes well. And especially if it does not, we want to hear about it. Uh, next up, we have a question from Aaron D. You may remember Aaron from last week's episode where we answered a question about, uh, what was it specifically, travel and why journeys are so frustrating and dull. Today, we're going to be talking about NPCs 
another thing we've talked about before, but we're excited to revisit again. Aaron asks, how do you make NPCs memorable, interesting, and adored? On an earlier episode, you spoke about a bumbling NPC that the party loved to have along with them, and were given a choice of curing him or keeping him on in his broken state. How do you solicit that kind of support for an NPC? My groups are wildly antagonistic to even the most generous of shopkeeps and bystanders. Have you ever been able to flip this kind of behavior? This is a um, a question that's near and dear to my heart because, first off, the NPC that he's referencing was one of my own, but also the fact that uh, this is one of my, like, personal goals in role-playing is to like move people beyond this state because i think there's the um the stereotype of rpgs like especially when they're portrayed in media and stuff um when they're just portrayed for a laugh that this is what it is is people are it's always tongue-in-cheek and there's there's no character buy-in necessarily like the idea that we are in this world at all is like what's the humor there instead of humor that's emergent from the world itself and uh and there's no character buy-in that like they don't have to be serious because there aren't any consequences because they aren't their character but because i think the real magic of good role playing that will lead to fun I, I ultimately i hope more fun is when you get past that point and like when when there is character buy-in when they do care about their own characters and others in the world and that sort of thing um and the answer to that out of game problem isn't just in game mechanics like you actually do have to out of game say hey guys this is the experience i'm going for and actually kind of give them a sense of that and maybe even if they really haven't been exposed to it let them know that that exists and is possible uh and maybe even point them to good examples um of actual play that they might watch a little bit of uh you could point them to force gray if you want like just a dnd example or point them to uh the one shot network or point them to friends at the table, or these these other like sort of um, serious in air quotes role playing, um, where although the tone might not always be serious, the 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 investment is. Um, but in character and in in the portrayal of characters and whatnot, I think that um, characters that are not just generous but interesting. That like, uh, especially players that like they they have the bare minimum of buy-in. As soon as something isn't interesting, they have no time for it whatsoever. They're like, kill this thing or remove it. Whereas if something is interesting or even just amusing, at least appealing to the very base uh, interest, they're gonna at least keep it around uh, for that reason. And for for my players, they had somewhat um, of buy-in early on. Um, the 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 character in question, uh, Curio, the gnome that I had, that was sort of uh, insane. Um, th that was for a party of, of players that this was their first role-playing experience. And so I was really ca cautious to try to use Kirio as a way to show them, uh, some hint at like the depth of what, um, RPGs could do. And I didn't like push him right on them at, at the start saying like, oh, this is a really complex and broken character. And he has an arc where you guys can choose his fate. He was just kind of like a quixotic character at first that, he helped them, but sort of at a, on random intervals. His character didn't act predictably t towards them in conversation or in action, and they were often having to, in a childish way, like shepherd him, like from one place to the other, because he would just start like staring at a wall for like long periods and and that type of thing. And so it was a character that like they, they whenever they asked what is he doing right now, got an interesting answer. So if it, they knew that if they just murdered him or something like that, then that type of thing would stop. Additionally, he was 
mechanically useful to them because occasionally in combat he would make an enemy disappear into a, a rift, you know, like that sort of thing because he was a, a warlock and that sort of So I think that the, the sweet spot um, is going to be dependent on your group. And if you know, if you've seen them respond to anything at all well in your uh, time role-playing with them, try to make a character out of that. Like if they really love just extended descriptions of um the items they're carrying maybe maybe there's an npc that that they could identify with that is just a connoisseur of food or a connoisseur of weapons or something where that character is a vehicle for you to uh have fun just lavishly describing something or if they're if they love um you know stat bonuses and stuff like that give them like a finely tuned really helpful hireling that can set them up for combat maneuvers and and that sort of thing and and then they won't want to just blatantly kill that person off because um you know then they'd be losing that advantage yeah and and one other thing to remember is that it is the player's role as much as it is yours and if they are like flippant or like disrespectful in character to a certain npc as long as it's in the spirit of the game then just play back on that like make the npc respond appropriately and that sort of thing it doesn't have to be that they're playing the game wrong necessarily necessarily because for a lot of players it's an opportunity for them to live vicariously through stuff that their character would do that hopefully they wouldn't necessarily in real life so i have another angle on that i want to i want to respond to a couple of specific details my groups are wildly antagonistic to even the most generous of shopkeeps and bystanders. And I think generous is super interesting there because I think there's therein lies part of the problem, at least in my, if I were to take a guess. So I just got finished uh, rewatching all of The Good Place, which is this great NBC sitcom. Where, it's on my list. Uh, it's so good. Highly recommend it. Um, and there is a, a sequence where one of the characters, who's a very kind, very generous spirit, uh, is forced to interact with some literal demons who are just terrible house guests. And his response, because he's a generous and kind person, is to let them walk all over him and be generous and kind and turn the other cheek, etc. And so they keep walking all over him. And I think that your players here, Aaron, might be the demons, and your NPC is the kindly old man. Because... Uh, generous is not something that necessarily is going to lead to players, you know, grabbing onto that character, latching on and caring about them deeply forever. They're a pushover. They're they're a pushover. They're not going to bring anything interesting to the table because they won't bring anything back. They won't push back against the, against the cruelty that is ongoing. Um, the wild antagonism is a really fun dynamic to explore so one way to look at that and Eamon I think you you brought this up make them useful but make their usefulness make them kind of a dick about them being useful in one of my games there is a doctor character uh, who who heals up the crew Uh, this is a blades in the dark game and one of the players has a move called ghost contract where if you shake on an agreement that contract is sealed and if you fail to uphold it you are cursed and the agreement right now is as basically as penance for having broken an earlier agreement, I will heal your crew. I will be a part of this crew and I will help you all recover after your missions go poorly. And that relationship is super antagonistic because he hates working with this, this crew, but he has been somewhere between fooled and forced coerced into it. 
And between being antagonistic but being helpful and being forced to be helpful, the result is the players have actively connected with him and have explored stories related to him and his relationship with the rest of the city and his relationship with the other factions, etc., which they wouldn't have if this had just been a pushover doctor that they could go to for free at the very beginning. I found as well that um, a lot of times this is falls this type of behavior falls under the uh, the murder hobo umbrella where the, the players can just kind of like go from place to place and just kill whatever they want to because that's the type of game that they're playing. It's sometimes a symptom of a game that's really easy or hero fantasy. I'm talking like mechanically easy where there's not the threat of dying because the players have no natural predators, so to speak, that anywhere their characters go, they know that if they just roll the dice hard enough, like think things are going to fall apart in front of them. And if the players feel like under pressure, like if maybe they are the ones who are having to save their butts from some other group of really powerful adventures, just kind of getting bored with them and just trying to carelessly dispatch them or attack them for no good reason. Um, once they're under threat, they'll be looking for resources and looking for help in order to uh, survive the challenge. And they'll be looking for things, bond bridges that they want to immediately burn, so to speak. And that's a caref- uh, hard technique to employ because if you just don't really say anything out of character and just ramp up the difficulty, it can really easily slide into antagonistic GMing where uh, you're like, oh, you're going to make fun of my game. I'm just going to make it really hard. And then it's not fun for anyone. Um, and so so be intentional. Be like, hey, guys, I noticed that the game might be a little easy and maybe not that interesting because of that. Uh, what if we had some more meaningful challenges and here's how I see that going? And then, you know, then slide into something like that. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that in, in a lot of my games, when I've told the players like, hey, I'm interested in the stakes being a little bit more real. So tonight's session expect combats to not be winnable by just hitting over and over and that sort of things that the players have responded well like um and and they have not um you know called foul if their characters have been killed by uh, those types of encounters yeah as we frequently find a great solution to your role-playing game problems is talk to your players about what's going wrong <laughs> or talk to your gm about what's going wrong this is no exception i definitely you know, I, I find that I alluded to this when we were talking about safety discussion or safety mechanisms a little while ago. No violence against children is one of my lines, which doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that if a child is present, I automatically know that they're perfectly safe forever. But it does mean that the GMs can see, oh, this is a person who actually cares about kids. So let's get some kids in the mix. Let's have some kid NPCs. And that's actually something that I do in my when I GM is have, you know, NPCs of all ages and representing a variety of different sort of places in their life. So if your players aren't responding positively or aren't responding in the way that you want to the NPCs that you've been presenting, give them something new. Maybe you just haven't found the right uh, the right NPC for them yet. It takes a fine touch. I'd say a last piece of advice for me is uh, be patient with yourself because, um, you know, especially if you're new to role-playing games and the people that you're playing with in neutral role-playing games, the type of experiences that you're going to have at the table aren't going to be, like, world-class right off the bat, and, and nor should you expect them to be. And that doesn't mean that they can't be fun. 
Like you, you shouldn't watch something online and then like make that your yardstick for yourself. And that goes for everything. Right. Outside of we we shouldn't compare too. ourselves to what we see on the Internet, because what we see on the Internet will always be the stuff that everyone else agrees we should look at. Right. That the algorithms and the clicks have decided is yeah. worthwhile. You know, ain't that the truth? Well, well, I, they're really raising eyebrows at us. In this I, I'm now. getting increasingly nervous that we have just been drinking alongside zombies this whole time. Look at them shambling. Oh, if you enjoyed what we did today and you want us to do stuff specific to your own personal interests, then let us know by joining the community and discussion on the Dungeon World Discord podcast channel. Beyond that, you can hit us up on Twitter at play to find out number two instead of the letter T-O, and by emailing us at play to find out at protonmail.com. That's P-L-A-Y-T-O-F-I-N-D. Our branding is consistent and our content is great. And if you agree that our content is great, we'd love for you to tell the rest of the world that by jumping on iTunes or whatever your podcast app of choice happens to be and leaving a review saying as much. We'd love to hear from everybody out there, learn about what you all are doing, what you're liking, what you're not liking, when we're wrong, when we're correct, whatever it happens to be. We hope that we're making your games better. So once again, I've been Arthur or Art Projects on the Dungeon World Discord. And I've been Eamon or Voidlight on the Dungeon World Discord. And thanks again for listening to Play to Find Out. What a pleasure it's been. Peace. meat hands will be the death of me a phrase i've uttered many times pathetic meat hands is my next in in a game yes <laughs> uh, you, you roll up on a uh, a tavern with a swinging wooden sign that has a, a sort of crude painting of hands crossed mm -hmm. out in red ink that someone has painted over the top and it says, ye old pathetic meat hands. Mm -hmm. You go in there and it's just a, like a drive through terminal style window. You speak your order into a small grate and then it is sluiced out to you in pellet form. I was, I was thinking like the inhabitants are all giant hand people, kind of like the thumblings from Spy Kids. Yes, the thumb thumbs. The thumb thumbs. Fucking yes. So, Great. so disconcerting. Those are so good. I love them. Uh, all right. Cool.